You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Megan Dom, is it Dom or Dom? Um, that's a longer conversation. We can say Dom. Dom. Yeah. Uh, it's good. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me. Great to be uh, with you. Well, welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience. Uh, Meaning of Life TV, Bloggingheads TV. Uh, this is available on video streaming and audio podcasts. I'm here with, uh, Megan Daum and, uh, maybe you could, uh, give your a little bio since you've done so many things. I'd like, you should give your selection of, of, of what you want to mention in terms of letting people know who you are. Oh, okay. So, uh, I, I'm an essayist primarily. The book we're going to be talking about mostly uh, is not an essay collection, but that's it. The problem with everything. Um, so I, uh, I have been a opinion columnist for the Los Angeles Times. I did that from 2005 to about 2015. Um, I'm the author of six books, a couple of essay collections, a novel, uh, a memoir, and uh, I've been a journalist for a long time, done all sorts of things. So this recent book is sort of hard to categorize. It's kind of a extended rumination about the state of the culture wars and really a self-interrogation. I'm trying to look at why certain aspects of the current moment don't resonate with me and if I'm wrong about that or if I'm right. Um. You went to, I, 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 from the book, I know you went to Vassar. Um, what years were you in Va- at Vassar? I was there from 1988 to 1992. So one of my best friends went to, was in Vassar from 1986 to 1990. Um, and uh, when we're done and we're off camera, I'll ask you if you know him, just in case. Really? That makes for such good TV, though. Do you just, know? Yeah, but you, what if you had, like, some, some terrible encounter with him at some drunken party or something? <laughs> oh, I no. Mean, it would be like a Me Too moment live on screen. Especially given how small that school is. That's very possible. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Um, I would um, never do that. <laughs> it actually reminds me. So one of my daughter's friends, best friends, her mother was at the University of Michigan at exactly the same time I was. Now, the University of Michigan um, – uh, of course, is gigantic, so you could easily ne- never meet people who you were there with. But um, I remember one time I dropped one of my uh, uh, maybe not so uh, not so wise uh, cracks, and I said to her, "I said, are you sure you and I didn't get together at a party?" <laughs> my daughter was appalled and wanted to murder me. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about this book. Um, I, I really I really enjoy this. It, it's kind of glary, so you can't see, but I've dog eared like the whole thing. Oh, um, um, I have to tell you that I've read. I, I said this too privately. Um, I got a, a lot of similar vibe from this as I got from Brady Stanalis's latest book, White. And here's the sense in which it's not necessarily that you and him agree on everything or that you come to the same conclusions, but more the combination of kind of like a personal memoir that, that sort of serves also to explain why you find yourself out of sync culturally now. Yeah. Give it, and then that's illuminated by, by giving a very good sense of where, of where you came from, the ethos out of which you, your consciousness was formed. And so I found them, but I really, really like that that style of writing, it strikes me as probably pretty difficult to do. Um, um, and yeah. um, I won't deny saying that I actually think that the, 
the personal autobiographical stuff is some of the best stuff in the book. Um, oh, thank um, you. Um, um, the stuff about, and you know, we, we certainly don't have to talk about this if you don't want to. The stuff, the, w- the way you wrote about your divorce is absolutely really fascinating. Oh, we can talk it's about that. I wrote the book. I, I always love it when people say, well, I wrote a whole book about this, but I'm not going to talk about it. Yeah, so. you know, the whole time I was reading about your divorce, I, I was trying to figure out why you, why you got divorced. And then, I, and, then I, and then I thought to myself, you know, if they'd had children, I bet you they wouldn't have. Um, um, because, know. you know, my threshold with my wife has always been, you know, unless we're throwing furniture at each other, we're staying together because we've got right. a daughter. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> Who knows? We had two very large dogs and we still uh, got divorced, so. Um, so, so let's get started, um, with, why don't you talk a little bit about the elements that you sort of included in your autobiographical story, how, what were you trying to communicate through that in order to explain what the rest of the book is about, which is your take on the contemporary zeitgeist? Yeah. Well, there were many iterations of this book. Uh, I started it in... 2016, well before the election. So it was really going to be focused on feminism. It was going to be a kind of like manifesto kind of funny thing called you are not a badass. I was just going to sort of be commenting on this, this rhetoric around, uh, hash, hashtag third and fourth wave feminism. Uh, and, and what sort of troubled me about it. And I figured everyone would be able to take it because we would have a female president and this would roll off everyone's back. So obviously that didn't happen. Uh, and then as things started to get more and more polarizing and just sort of fraught, uh, beyond issues around women, and, you know, we entered this kind of intersectional, quote unquote, wokeness ethos more broadly, um, I wanted to talk about it, but I knew that there was really no way to do it, uh, unless I took a, I, I looked through a personal lens. At least there wasn't any really effective way for me to do it because I could have hammered away at um, the intersectional wars and I could have talked about how I as a liberal feel alienated from certain aspects of what we're now calling progressivism, et cetera, et cetera. But I just don't think that would have been interesting because ultimately it's not about whether or not these things are good or bad, but why one, a person like me would feel alienated from them. So I wanted to sort of go back and talk about growing up in the 70s and the 80s and write alongside second wave feminism. I think that's a big part of it. And look at what was it about my generation that made us a certain way, gave us a certain temperament, certain traits that perhaps have contributed to this generational divide when it comes to Me Too, when it comes to uh, these, these political, cultural issues more generally. So I'm I'm older than you. I was born in 1968, um, but we 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 did have a very similar sort of experience. Um, I grew up in suburban Long Island. Um, um, my my adolescence was basically like a John Hughes movie. Um, they were incredibly accurate to my experience. Um, and uh, you know, early on in the book, you talk about how you know people from our generation who actually lived through a actual real crime wave as opposed to an invented crime wave, like the one that people claim that they're in now. Um, um, and what's in, it's interesting. I actually find it kind of interesting that both right and the left 
today have manufactured an artificial crime crime wave, right? So Trump ran on the cities are burning and so on and so forth. And the progressives are running on rape culture and, and, right. and, 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 you know, people uh, being beat up in the streets of Portland right, uh, for having jobs and stuff. And, and right. it's interesting. Um, uh, it's just interesting that they have both uh, sort of seem to have a similar derangement. Um, but one of the things that you said in the beginning was like everybody who, you know, grew up when we did, you know, had either been mugged or beaten up or something. I've, I've been mugged twice at gunpoint. Oh my gosh. Um, in the early going you out. You say that so proudly with a, a smile on your face. Right. And, and I just, I, I always, um, it just, it engendered no histrionics on my part. Um, as a matter of fact, I actually decided not to go to the police because it would mean that I couldn't keep drinking, right? Because <laughs> um, um, I was out with my friends. <laughs> and um, wow. it, sort of, it sort of reminded me of that. Um, um, what it, so what, let me ask you to, to sort of reduce, because, you know, the book is, you go into a lot of things. Maybe you could distill down a handful of key elements from, the experience, your experience growing up, our generation's experience growing up, that you think is particularly relevant to the our the attitudes towards the current the current zeitgeist. Well, so I was born in 1970. I'm just two years younger than you, and like I said, I grew up right alongside second wave feminism. So I was three years old when abortion became legal. I remember the Equal Rights Amendment. I was 12 years old, 1982, when that. I remember sitting in the kitchen with my mother listening to NPR and we heard that that wasn't going to be ratified. We were really sad about that. My mother was a big second wave feminist. She, you know, marched on the Capitol steps, that sort of thing. Uh, But all growing up in those decades in the seventies and the eighties, I never had any sense of myself as a girl as being anything but equal to boys. In fact, the boys were doing worse. The girls were better. It was better to be a girl there seemed like a much wider spectrum of expression that was acceptable for girls. Like you could be a girly girl, but what was really cool was to be a tomboy. There was this kind of aesthetic androgyny that was prevalent in, in the seventies around kid culture, not just the free to be you and me stuff. Remember that? So that was, uh, oh, I've, I've written quite a lot about that. That had a huge impact on my, on yeah. the I think. So um, yeah. That, right. So there was this movement that came right out of second wave feminism about how, uh, you know, we were going to get rid of gender stereotypes. And so free to be you and me was this very popular record put up by Marlo Thomas, singer and actress, Marlo Thomas. And it had all these celebrities singing on it, Alan Alda and, and uh, I think Elliot R- Rosie Greer. Rosie Greer. The it's football. all right to it's all right to cry. Yeah, it was, you know, it was all about how boys could cry and boys could have dolls, and a girl could grow up to be a plumber if she wished. And so there was that element, and that was the sort of shoved down your throat uh, element. But then there was also, I think, this more this subtler kind of just more purely aesthetic uh, feeling around just how people dressed what we watched on TV, we weren't boys and girls as much as we were kids, you know, like yeah, we you, all mentioned, you mentioned Christy McNichol and, yes. and Jodie Foster and, and you're absolutely right in the sense that um, there was, it's not, it's not as if there wasn't the very feminine sort of sex symbol-y, sort of teen idol-y type. There was that. There was Charlie's Angels, right? And Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders. But there was also these other equally prominent big stars who were not like that. And it was kind of just not noticed in in, in any sort. It, it was it worked in the sense to the extent to which people sort of didn't notice it, right? I mean, it just 
It didn't prevent well, right. those people so from I, being stars. So I say it's kind of funny that the two biggest child celebrities of the 70s were Jodie Foster and Christy McNichol, and they both grew up to be very out lesbians, yeah. and they just had that way about them. So, you know, when I was a little girl, we didn't want to be a Disney princess. We wanted to be Jodie Foster in Freaky Friday. We wanted to be Nadia Comaneci. The gymnast who was just yeah. very serious, very austere, no nonsense. And so that was the vibe. And I think that extended into the nineties. There was this, you know, the riot girl aesthetic, I think kind of, kind of came out of that. And then fast forward a couple decades. Uh, and I noticed, you know, five, six, seven years ago, the default premise of the conversation around women were that uh, it, we, we were an underclass, that there was something oppressive uh, just about being a woman because we were living under the thumb of this patriarchy. And it did not really line up with any of my presuppositions about myself. Uh, and it didn't really, I, I, there was like a conversation going on mostly online that really, really took this tack that men have so much more power over us that we're going to like punch up all the time and hashtag ban men and talk about this completely abstract idea of toxic masculinity, that sort of thing. So, but this is really key here in this book. I, I could have just uh, really gone to town and presented an argument as to why all this is silly, but I have enough people that I respect that really do not think it's silly at all uh, and who see things quite differently that I, I think it, it's made more sense to approach the project as a self-examination. So why is it that this isn't making sense to me? What am I missing? Is there something about my experience? Do I have blind spots? Is it just a matter of my temperament? How much of it is generational? That sort of thing. So the book is really just a process of wrestling with this stuff on, on every page. And yes, it was incredibly difficult to write, uh, not only because of the, the, the self-scrutiny of it all, but just that the culture is mo moving so rapidly that it's like playing whack-a-mole. I would talk about, write, spend days writing about some brouhaha that happened, and then it, the next week it would just be irrelevant. Yeah, I, I actually find, although I do write about it quite a bit, I find it difficult to write about it. Um, um, I'm not sure why. For me, it's not that it's changing so much because – it's changing, but in a very superficial way. I mean, the, the, the basic themes are, are pretty much repeated over and over again, just with like sort of different skins on them. Um, um, I think my, my reason for finding it so difficult to write about is that I think the current zeitgeist is so ill-founded, poorly thought through, um, mm -hmm. um, um, so dependent upon people not knowing any history at all. Right. Um, and just sort of sort of reacting as if everything just emerged ex nihilo right now um, that um, I find it difficult to engage with something that has so little basis in reality. And that's based entirely in sort of a kind of an outraged posture. Yeah. It's very um, blunted. It's flat, um, right? Yeah, it's yeah. very ignorant. I find it very ignorant. Um, um, and uh, uh, I, I'm sort of surprised by the reactions I get when I start pointing out sort of facts to people Um you know, I've had conversations with my students about whether they live in a rape culture. And when I just point out to them sort of federal crime statistics from 1976, let's say, to now, they they sort of stare at me like, 
it doesn't it doesn't register. They just say the same thing again afterwards, right? It doesn't, think- it doesn't occur to them that oh wait a minute, my reaction doesn't make any sense given the relative scale, right? Do you, do you sometimes have the feeling that it's almost frightening to them? Like it's, they, they sort of sit there and go, oh no, oh no, oh no. My professor who I like and respect is about to become the sort of person who right. uh, questions whether or not it's a rape culture and he's going to start right. throwing out statistics. It's right. like a panic. Right, rather than thinking, oh wow, I'm 19 years old, I probably still need to learn some things. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I also just, I really I I would like to know what rape culture means. It can mean so many different things. I think we rely on these on these monikers to do all this work for us, but they really just contribute to a general incoherence. Yeah, now look, what you said is perfectly true about your your, your the way you write this. Um I was actually struck. There are places where I actually got a little annoyed with you. Because I thought you were you were twisting yourself into a pretzel to try and find some credible aspect of the thing that you're talking about, which is just <laughs> batshit crazy. Um, um, but like what? do you remember? Well, no, no, not specifically, but this in all these responses, and actually, I I, I want to get to this question about how you about how you feel about about. The, the younger generations and their reactions to the book because um, um, there have been a lot of sort of negative reactions to the book as, as could be predicted. Yeah. Um, um, but before, before I get to that, I just sort of want to, I want to, I want to spend more time sort of just in the details. Um, tell me a little bit, just let's talk a little bit about it. Cause a, a good part of the, 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 the bio centers around the relocation from LA to New York. Um, um, so you're originally New York, then LA is, is your, the period of your marriage. The marriage disintegrates. You come back to New York and have some very interesting reflections about what it was like being back in New York. Um, maybe you could just talk a little bit about, about that, that arc and yeah. the role it played in forming the consciousness that then is in this book. Yeah. So I lived in New York all through my twenties. So that would be all through the 1990s. I left in with the end of 1999. So you have to think about what New York was like back then. It wasn't You're talking about the city. You're talking about the city. Cause New York city, Manhattan. you were at, Va- you were in New York. You were at Vassar in the late eighties. Uh, right. Well, so I graduated, I spent a lot of time at Vassar, like getting on the Metro North and hanging out in, in the city and pretending I was not a college student. So let's just, I, I, I count the entire, and also Vassar is just sort of like an annex of, of Manhattan or it was at that time. So I, I, I count that. So, but yes, effectively I was there my, my entire twenties and the city, it certainly was not as dangerous as it had been in the eighties and the seventies, but it was not like it, it is today. And I was gone for a long time. My 30s went by, most of my 40s, much of my 40s. And I came back uh, in the wake of divorce. And as I write in the book, it felt like my youth was being handed back to me in used condition. I I think that that whole characterization of how you felt when you came back was really wonderfully done. There was something about... There's something about New York too, because everybody's walking around all the time and you're looking at people and you're interacting with them. And it's like, I could see the person I used to be 
in every young person I passed. It's like this existential crisis at every turn uh, in a way that I think is unique to, to New York City. At least it is for me, I guess, by definition, because that's where I was young. But uh, so I started kind of I had a kind of personal midlife crisis at that time. And then this political crisis came. So it was like I was having this personal crisis uh, against the backdrop of this political meltdown uh, with the Trump election. And I, I, I started thinking a lot about how those two things might be aligned and, and the ways in which my particular generation, and I'm somebody who has written a lot about Gen X. When I was in my 20s and I started publishing, they would say, oh, she's the, the voice of her generation, whatever, this horrible things people say. And, you know, it occurred to me that the millennial influence was so powerful and it was powerful in the way the baby boomer influence had been. And the Gen Xers, not only are we kind of pushed aside because we're just a smaller cohort in terms of numbers, we're in this kind of funny position where we're not digital natives. Uh, we're, we're doing our best to keep up, but at the end of the day, you know, I had a selectric typewriter at my desk, my first job out of college. Like I had a Rolodex. We had a, we had computers, but we did not have email. And so we are in this weird position now of, of sort of in many ways becoming obsolete before we're even 50. Like we're old before we're old. And that I think may be contributing to some of the friction uh, around things like the Me Too movement, around just sort of the, the culture war conversations. And, and I think it's worth being conscious of, of just the ways that our sensibilities are different rather than like just, you know, beating up the other side and saying, well, you guys are a bunch of pussies. Because certainly when I started this project, I would have been more inclined to say, you guys are a bunch of pussies and we're tough. And that's the end of the story. But I thought about this so much that I think there's much more to it than that. Yeah, look, I'm inclined to I'm inclined to agree with you. I, I'm gone. I've gone in kind of the opposite direction in the sense that I started off <laughs> inclined to be very generous because, listen, my job is teaching young people. Um, I've taught over ten thousand students. I, I've actually figured this out going back. I've been teaching since 1993. I've taught over ten thousand students. I've taught students across this generational line from millennials to Gen to Gen, Gen Z or iGen or whatever you want to call them. And so I started off very inclined to be generous, but the reaction that we get to any kind of attempt to bring our ideas and sensibility to the table is so hostile and also so stupid at the same time that I'm actually finding myself less and less generous. And now I really do want to say, you guys are a bunch of pathetic, impotent failures (laughs) <laughs> who think that screaming at people at the internet is doing something, but unless you have money or power, it actually doesn't mean anything, right? I mean, you're just, you're just deluding yourself into thinking you're having some sort of effect. Um, and um, the, this, the, the most recent thing, I read, the, the, we'll talk about this, this review of your book in The New Yorker, um, and which is, I, I really annoyed me, but what it, what it struck me most of, I read it at the same time that I read another essay in the New York times where this guy attacked Obama uh, or right. And, and, and for some yeah. reason it all brought to my mind this okay boomer meme, right? Which to me just perfectly encapsulates 
the gener the, the young generations, right? I mean, I mean, it's it's a combination of ignorance, um, a false bravado, and the illusion of 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 having you know got, caught someone in a sick burn when yeah. really you just look pathetic, right? I mean, it just looks so pathetic, but they just are so busy congratulating each other about it yeah. that they haven't yet figured out that none of the people who actually matter are impressed, right? Um, but they're starting <laughs> to be the ones that matter. I, this is a very. Uh, I, I I hope you're right. I don't know. Well, we they could. Talk, that's what I want to talk about because you yeah. know one of the things that really came through in the book, which struck me, was. I don't know you, so I don't want to be, I, 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 but I want to push you because I, I like, you're so, you're so um, um, detailed and complex and, and interesting. I almost felt like you were apologizing for yourself. Um, and I almost got a detect. Don't knock my hobby, sir. Yes. I got it. I detected a sense of, of insecurity because of age. Mm. There's numerous places in the book where you're just sort of, and you even said it now in our conversation, we're obsolete. In what sense? According to whom? Well, what sense am I obsolete? I've taught over 10,000 students. Um, I have far more wealth and power and influence than any of them do, right? Um, um, You know, hundreds of thousands of people read my magazine every year. In what sense am I obsolete? I'm not getting it. Why? Because somebody in a basement putting up a a sick meme burned me? That makes me obsolete? I mean, I I don't get it. When I'm talking about obsolescence in this book, I'm talking about the ways in which mentorship has been affected. Um, ways, Explain that. Explain well, that. so for example, I have students. I don't. I probably have not taught ten thousand students, but quite a few. And they'll come to me and they say, "Well, how can I do what you do? How do I make a career?" I teach writing students. I teach graduate writing students. Most. Oh often. wow! And That's they, amazing. You yeah. teach at the graduate level. Yeah, I teach at Columbia. That yeah. must be very. Uh, well, that must be rewarding, no? It's, it is, you know. But it's also sad because they come and they say, "Okay, well, how do I how do I publish the way you did? What do I do?" And I give them advice, and it's based on, on an antiquated business model. It, uh, it's based on uh, uh, the, the the notion that you can actually make a living doing this, which I barely did. Uh, in my 20s and 30s, and I still struggle to do, but was possible in a way that most definitely it is, it is not now. And so I find myself being very, um, I, I try to tell them my experience, but it almost sounds more like I'm just, you know, swashbuckling and, you know, talking about the good old days rather than offering them constructive advice because the world is so entirely different. Another example is I talk to them a lot about standing up to this mob mentality on the internet and about how it's our job as writers to take intellectual risks, to, to look at the world and see where the hypocrisies are and be the one to step forward and say, Hey, the conventional wisdom is this, the approved message is this thing. I actually think it's something else. And like, take the hits for that. That used to be the job of the public intellectual. And I went on a rant like that one day and my students just said to me, you know, that's easy for you to say, you're not going to be canceled on Twitter before you start. We, we really can't, we don't have the luxury of just saying, well, screw you. It's only Twitter. And, and I really have that, that really sort of made me think it, it, it took me aback because it's very easy for me to say like, Oh, it's just Twitter mobs. Screw it. You know, you've got to take risks. You've got to like, you know, be the one to say it, but 
I was able to do that back in the 90s because there was no social media. I wasn't looking over my shoulder every other sentence to imagine who was going to beat me up. I do that now. But if that, if those conditions had existed when I was starting off as a writer, I would never be the kind of writer that I turned out to be. I would never have this kind of career. So I think it's a tremendous gift that I came of age when I did, but I also recognize that it's, it's not a gift that the younger generations have. So that's what I mean by, by obsolescence. I mean, it might be a kind of loaded word, but look, I, I don't look, there's certain, look, there's certain things from our experience that are no longer going to be relevant, like things like navigating the publishing industry, let's say, okay. Uh-huh. Um, because the industry's changed so much. But I got the sense a lot of the places in the book where you where you express a kind of a feeling of um, being past it, not relevant anymore, had had to do not with those kinds of things, but with your with your values, with your ethos, mm-hmm. with um um. And if anything, I think that pretty much what our world needs more than anything right now is the Gen X ethos, right? I, uh, I mean, yes. Part of the part of the problem is that. We we went from the baby boomers to the millennials to Gen Z when we skipped Gen X, and now what 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 does that mean? It means that we've had unremitting, unbreaking, endless activism, right? Because that's the thing that unites all three of them. I find the OK Boomer meme hilarious, partly because um, the people that they're yelling at, the boomers, were the ones are their progenitors in terms of their own ethos, right? I mean, this whole this whole. <laughs> It's all like hypersensitive, you know, everything, you know, everything is viewed through the lens of race and gender and rights and civil rights and all of this. The boomers invented that, right? Um, they're the ones who made the personal political, right? Um, um, and so I don't even get the sense, I don't even get in what sense these people are opposed to the boomers. You're just channeling, you're just a less potent version you're just the boomers with less import, right? I mean, you're the boomers who just do things online and don't actually do anything else. The boomers at least went and actually protested a war and got shot on campus for doing it. You yeah. just go online and talk about protesting things. You don't actually do anything. So I don't understand. I guess I don't, I feel almost like you're apologizing for us when it seems to me what we should mm. be saying is, hey, you people need us really badly because you guys are flying off the rails, right? You're, you're going you're gonna to destroy the whole thing. They're in the process right now of destroying the civil rights movement, right? Because intersectionality is destroying. I mean, look what's happening within the LGBT yeah, movement. It is literally falling apart. Um, in England, it's already falling apart. Here, it's in the process of falling apart. And... Um, and once that gets destroyed, you can sort of kiss the left goodbye. I mean, um, one of the things I'm saying th- saying to people, you know, I predicted Trump was going to win. I knew he was going to win, and I'm pretty convinced he's going to win again. Yeah. And I actually think that electoral college wins and 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 popular vote losses are going to become the new normal because the Democrats are all just clustered in like a handful of of, of major metro areas, and they're only talking to each other. And then everybody else, they say, "Okay, boomer, too." Right. Like they don't have to listen to them, right? I, so I, I feel like we should be aggressively pushing our ethos because it's exactly the ethos that the country needs. But it seems to me in the book, it feels like you're almost apologizing for it. Well, uh, I think there's room for all sorts of approaches here. Look, I'm not a polemicist. I'm, I'm an essayist. I take a really literary approach. Like I said, I had earlier versions of this book that were very much doing what you just described. 
I, I don't think we're in a moment where that sort of approach, uh, would go down so well. I mean, I, I could have gone on a huge, I, I didn't even talk about the, about the trans stuff vis-a-vis LGB rights because it's the kind of thing, unfortunately, that it would hijack the entire book. There's a lot going on in this book. And I, I guess my allegiance artistically is to, uh, a, a more layered approach. Uh, and again, it's like, it's just, it's one book. I would love someone to write the book that you just described. I would love 14 people to write that book. Uh, I think there's room for like any number of different, you know, lenses into this, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that it's apologizing. I want to be generous. Always my approach as a columnist, as an opinion writer, whatever, as an essayist, has been not like, I want to make you agree with me, but I want to invite you to think alongside of me. And that frustrated a lot of people when I was a a newspaper columnist because they couldn't tell if I was on the left or the right or whatever. But I guess, yeah, ultimately I I approach this like like an essayist. And I think it's funny that, you know, the the thing that you, the thing that, that frustrates you most about the book the uh some of the response that i'm getting it's it's as if they missed that entirely they are it is being interpreted as a completely ham-fisted merciless indictment of millennials uh anyway <laughs> so well, and that's I, that's why i, th- I thought you know you say. i thought to myself there's a certain futility <laughs> in trying to be so generous because these people aren't listening right i mean i mean I, maybe if you want to we can talk about this new yorker review um this new yorker review written by um um, Emily Witt, who is a, uh, one of the very early millennials. Um, um, and, um, yeah, I mean, you would think that you had written like some sort of Trumpian sort of manifesto. Yeah. Um, from the discharacterization <laughs> she gave of the book. I assume that she did not call you or interview you at all, did she? No, it's a review. There's no need for that. No, I didn't say there was a need for it, right, but I yes, mean, yes. I, you know, it seemed, no, she didn't ask me what the book was about after reading it. No. Yeah. She, she didn't, she didn't email you anything or ask you any questions. How do you, so when you get a review like that, I mean, what, what's your, oh, how do you, I was, uh, frankly, I was sort of thrilled because it's a great advertisement for the book. It, it is case in point. It is exactly what the book is about. Yeah, she illustrates exactly what it is that you're Absolutely. talking about without even realizing it. Right? Oh, yeah. No, it was perfect. It was perfect, and it was exactly what I had anticipated. Look, I this is my sixth book. I admittedly have been – I have been a recipient of the embrace of the elite media. I have written for all the magazines. I have been published. I've been interviewed on NPR every time. I've gotten the awards. And I knew that this book was not going to be, it wasn't going to be received that way. This was not a book that was going to get positive reviews. These sorts of takes are really built into the project. I feel like they could be the epilogue on a, on the paperback edition, honestly. So yeah, it's a little jarring, but frankly, I would be more dismayed if I was getting sort of like, you know, polite nods from, from this kind of, uh, reviewer class. I mean, the book is a critique of the very value system of, of current opinion. So it would, it would really cancel the, the premise of the book if it was getting, if it was just being sort of generically well received. Yeah. The two things that she sort of says, I mean, one, one thing that she says is sort of that, um, she simply rejects your characterization of the ethos that you bring to bear to these questions as being a Gen X ethos. 
and she sort of, um, I don't know, weirdly, weirdly lists a bunch of Gen X things that she claims are Gen X things that um, reflect the opposite ethos. So I'm, I'm reading this just from the article. Um, quote, I'm 11 years younger than Dom, so I'm nearing 40. If I'm a millennial, I'm barely one. Um, uh, the culture I consumed as a teenager was made by the members of Generation X. Where exactly was the toughness that Dom fondly recalls? I remember the 90s as a time of earnest political expression of cross-colors T-shirts. Uh, Gen X gave us grunge and emo, the earthy feminism of the Lilith Fair, the social justice-minded underground rap scene, straight-edge punks, the rave, you know, so on and so forth, REM. Now, it's not so much that any of this is untrue, but it's it's amazing for what it leaves out and you wonder if she even knows what she's talking about or whether just you know it leaves out hair metal it leaves out mtv it leaves out um 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 john hughes it leaves out freddy stanellis it leaves right. out i mean so many things that well people- even non-cultural things it leaves out the divorce epidemic it leaves <laughs> out latchkey kids it leaves out social panics around uh, around you know safety it, right. I, this, like it's this is not just about MTV and, and metal bands. This is about, as we now say, lived experience. You know, it's funny. I, I mean, I am not going to get into a thing where I'm res- responding to my critics and great no, of course not. This is bad not. form. But but you know, it, it's like if I, I dare say, if it was, if I was like a person from perhaps a marginalized group, to be denying that person their lived experience is just the absolute absolute taboo. That's just a no-no in in any sort of writing. So I find it funny that my lived experience is is being erased. The only lived experiences that matter are the ones that they've already decided matter to begin with. It's not everybody's. (laughs) Um, No, but the reason I'm not trying to respond to Rita, but the reason I raise it is because – it seems to me that try to try to suggest on the basis of some of a handful of examples that Gen X was characterized by a kind of navel gazing, self-absorbed, um, 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 overwrought, um, a heavily political is just so obviously demonstrably false. And if it was true, there would have been no dy- there would have been no dynamic of hostility between baby boomers and us, right? No. The baby boomers hate us, right? And the reason they hate us is precisely because we're not all of those things and we really dislike all of those things in their in their generation and we called them out on it. I mean to me sort of the ultimate Gen X film in a certain way is is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Mm. And and precisely because I think at a certain level it kind of makes a nonsense of that whole that whole thing it sort of says you know what really matters what really matters is spending a nice day with your girlfriend and buddy right and, and hanging out and breaking the rules and 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 you know save all your agitprop and marches and and signs and everything for for somebody else right um that's that to me is what we were about um um and i just found that it was a really ham-fisted lame attempt to try and recharacterize us in a way that everybody knows. <laughs> yeah. True, that's what we're hated for is that we're not like that, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're, I, I love talking about generations, but I think surely you agree that there are limits as to how far th- this can go. I mean, this, it's not, that it's not just, we're talking very broad swaths here. So I do well, think. And part of the problem is that the generations are large. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. and so, it's very different. A Gen Xer born in 1968 is very different from one born in 1980, right? Yeah. Totally yeah. different types of experiences. 
Um, um, and, and it even gets down to who our parents are. So if you're an early Gen X, your parents are silent generation. Yeah. If you're yeah. a late gen-, gen X, your your parents are baby boomers, and um, that also has an makes an. Oh yeah, no, my parents were not baby boomers and did not identify with the boomers at all. I mean, yeah. they they were just five or six years younger. They would definitely have been, but they were very resentful of the of the baby boomers. And, yeah, my parents are silent like, generation. Yeah. 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 Um, speaking of Silent Generation, um, the icon of Silent Generation writers is Joan Didion, um, who's a personal favorite of mine, um, and she features pretty prominently in the book. Could you say just a few things about her, your estimation of her, how you, how how her work not only fits into your worldview and frame of mind, but specifically into the book itself, because there's quite a bit of space yeah. devoted to her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I use a quote from, from her in, in the beginning, you know, at the half-truths half repeated authenticate themselves, meaning half-truths when they are repeated, when they are amplified, become real. We think they authenticate themselves. We, we think that that's actually what's going on, and that's exactly what we see on social media now. And she wrote that back in 1972. So she, in 72, she wrote a, a piece in the New York times book review. It was a review of several books um, by and about second wave feminism. And she just excoriated the, the, the movement. She, she called it it's out. A, it's a brutal, brutal takedown. Um, it, it, it really is much more so than my book, uh, mind you. And, uh, she really just pointed out the ways in which it was performance. There was an element of, of political theater about it, a sense of grandiosity that you know, these women scurrying off to the mimeograph machine. And, and, you know, she was saying, why is it that, why, why are we saying that women are raped at every turn, raped by the gynecologist? You know, uh, why, why can't, why when she goes on a trip, must she stay in her hotel room because she's too scared to leave and, and go to get something to eat? Why must she cower in hotel, in her hotel room eating nothing but a donut? I mean, it was a, it was a brutal piece, very funny. Um, the kind of thing that would be unimaginable for the New York Times to publish today. Yeah. And I, she's one of these writers that I just miss so terribly. She's, she's still alive, but she's not active anymore. And I would just love to know what she would make of the current moment. And that piece, the woman's movement, uh, really animated a lot of this book. That's the name of the, of the piece in the New York Times book review. Because, you know, it's an example of somebody who was really taking on the culture and taking these sort of intellectual risks in the way that I encourage my students to do. And in fact, all of these people lionize her now. She's a meme. She's kind of has this notorious RBG uh, ethos around her. They auction off her Chanel sunglasses for thousands of dollars. And all these people worship her because they know of her more recent work, having no idea that she was doing this kind of stuff early on. And I, I found that quite inspiring and, and certainly worth um, bringing to the surface. But isn't it, I mean, it's kind of, isn't it kind of depressing? I mean, I mean, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that um, the, the, the current, the current generation should absolutely despise Joan Didion. Um, she, she basically trashed and, and every single ba- thing that they sort of embrace. Um, 
And what it means is that she's become sort of a free floating signifier, right? I mean, she just, you know, she just, she, <laughs> yeah. she's like everything else that they seem to do. She's a t-shirt of a band. They have no idea who the band is or what songs they play, right? Um, um, I, I started going up to people wearing t-shirts and asking them to name three songs by the group of the shirt that they're wearing just to see if they, if they have even any idea, right? Um, um, so in other words, you know. Right. It's, on one hand, it's nice that, that, that people are, are loving on her, but on the other hand, they're, they're not loving on her for any reason, right? I mean, Well, they're loving on her. I think they're, they're loving on her because they loved a, the year of magical thinking or their moms loved it. That's actually my least favorite of all of her books, believe it or mine not. Too, mine I find too. it really sentimental and, and easy and just not, it's not the Joan that I love. I don't uh, think that she's, that she's suited to write that kind of thing. And I felt that, I watched the documentary that was done by Griffin Dunn, which I thought was quite good. I thought so too. But the sense that I got was that she did that for the purpose of helping herself cope. Absolutely. Work yeah. Through. yeah. But I don't think it's the kind of work that her kind of mind does well. Well, it obviously worked. <laughs> Depends on your definition of well. It's by far her most successful book. Yeah, uh, no, that, no, I don't mean, I don't mean that wasn't successful, but just I, I, I I'm I agreeing with yeah. you that I think that her best work, yeah, is the stuff in the White Album and the stuff in in Slouching and, um, right, um, you know, the, the the women's movement piece. What's interest? One of the things really interesting about it is, it sort of makes you realize how nothing ever changes, right? Um, yeah. Because in a sense. The, all the things she's attacking have just all been resurrected, right? I mean, I mean, they were just having the same argument over again, except that now it's even less credible because women's condition is so much better now than it was in 1971. Well, that's the thing. Women's conditions have never been better. Most people's conditions have never been better. Maybe the, the only people who are doing worse are a, a, a lot of white men, the aggregate white men, not people the, in Rust Belt, deindustrialized yeah. parts of the country are the only ones not doing better. Exactly, exactly. So, and I would dare say that women in the Rust Belt are probably doing better than most of the men in the Rust Belt. So, I find it really telling that we almost want to create a crisis. So. Women are better educated, they're independent, they're buying real estate on their own, they're having babies on their own, there's actually not a lot of use for men, and that creates a whole other dynamic and hyper-assorted mating and all sorts of things that we probably don't need to get into here. But, you know, it's interesting the way when things are going really well, there might be almost this subconscious collective need to to create a crisis. You know, we, we saw it, it's, you know, back in the late 80s and early 90s, I'm sure you remember, when women started going to work, when upper middle class mothers started going to work en masse, when they started putting on their Nike running shoes with their power suits and going off to work, that's exactly when this idea that preschools were filled with Satan worship, Satan worshiping child abusers came about. That's when you started seeing the abducted kids on the milk cartons and there was mass hysteria around child abductions even though 99, or I shouldn't say, uh, the vast majority of those cases were um, non-custodial parents taking kids. There were a few very high-profile stranger abductions. So, you know, it is very common that when things are going relatively well, you'll see social panic arise. So I wonder if now that women are so clearly dominating, this is the very moment when we've decided that we're going to, uh, we're going to, 
punch up at men for for no particular reason. I mean, and look, don't get me wrong. There is work to do. You're, I'm not going to sit here and say that everything's totally equal, but they're pretty. It's pretty damn good. And if we want to make it better, we better uh, decide on what the projects are going to be. Well, yeah, I mean, look, that there's work to do is unquestionable. I don't think anybody denies it. Um, um, it's more a question of are you going to effectively get the work done if you act like things are the worst they've ever been and therefore alienate huge chunks of people that you actually need yeah. to get the work done, right? I mean, <laughs> in other words, you know, I mean, you're not going to convince anybody this way who's not already sort of in the bubble with you. And, um, um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. You're, you're, you're doing you, the analysis you give you almost saying, suggesting it's kind of cyclical, um, which would seem to sort of, uh, which is somewhat seems to be confirmed by the fact that we do seem to be having just exactly the same conversation we had back when night, when Didion wrote her critique of, of the, of the essay uh, of the, of the women's movement. But I've also been somewhat persuaded by John. I don't know if you're familiar with Jonathan Heights. Of course. Yeah. 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 And so, that would suggest it's not cyclical, but but that rather that something fundamentally changed around the early 1980s in terms of how we how we how we raise children, right? And that that then explains the brittle, fragile, sort of sort of um, 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 terif- constantly terrified histrionic, yeah, um, safetyism, um, yeah, person- personality of the the generations that came after the millennials and Gen Z. Which would then suggest that it's not really cyclical, but that that, that there's that there's a very clear it's point at which it's changing. We can ex- expect it to sort of continue. Right. Right. Are you are you persuaded, or do you do, do you think there's something very deep that this is no matter what we do, child rights, we're going to have cyclical panics and and sort of. Well, I think it's sort of yes and in that case. I'm quite compelled by uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff's work, the the coddling parent theory. I think that's true in a lot of cases. I feel like it, it's a little bit dangerous to stop at that. And I don't think they necessarily do. I think that's, that's a big part of it. Um, but I also, and again, this is probably some of the stuff that, that frustrated you in the book. I think we really have to be aware of how different certain conditions were for millennials growing up, especially when we get into areas of like, what is sexual consent and what is safety? They grew up with ubiquitous online pornography that you and I did not. And to my mind, that is more likely to get them into sexual situations that they don't know quite how to handle. They also don't know how to handle them because they don't have as much experience negotiating actual in-person, real-life physical interactions because everything is on a screen. Not their fault. That's what they were handed. And so something like sexual consent, we could sit here as older people and say, like, well, why don't you just leave the room? Why don't you hit him with your shoe? Why don't you call a cab? Why don't you just get out of there? Maybe there are a whole set of conditions that they're contending with and a, and a temperament, a, a brain wiring that we don't have that, that we're not recognizing. And so I guess that's one of the things that when I started the book, I was much more inclined to say, like, toughen up, hit him with your shoe, run out of the room, call a cab. And now I'm like, okay, I still think that you should know how to do that, but I think it would behoove us to think about what they're up against that, that we were not necessarily. I mean, I certainly, I hear horror stories from people who are dating now, especially younger people. I, I think, I mean, I don't know how much we want to get into this. I think the young men who grew up watching online pornography 
have really different set of ideas about sex than men who did not. Yeah. Look, um, a, you're absolutely right. Um, let's be very clear about whose fault this is. It's ours. Uh, it's not kids fault. Right. <laughs> um, um, that may, that said, that does, you know, to my mind, I always think, okay, well, if something's your fault, then you have the responsibility to try and fix it, right? Um, um, rather than to simply con- you say, okay, we screwed it up. Now that it's screwed up, um, we're just going to keep allowing it to be screwed up no matter what. Um, it seems to me that, okay, our generations, us and the, ba- the X and the baby boomers, you know, we, we really, really made a serious error in terms of in terms of collectively how we decided to to raise children. Mm. And but the solution isn't to keep keep making the error. The solution is to to stop making the error. The problem is is that um, there's such a there's such a ferocious response from the young right to, towards any effort to sort of say, okay, you know, maybe this isn't the, really the best way to think about these things. You know, we, we do have, you know, we do have the benefit of having lived, having experienced both types of cultures. Right. Um, and so we're maybe in a good position to say, you know, we thought this was the right way to go, but now thinking back on it, we had it much tougher than you and we were allowed to be exposed to all this, this difficulty. And it really, we're not all hysterical and histrionic and acting and reacting. So what do you mean? I just, so I, I mean, what do you mean when you say error? What error are you referring to? Well, the error to start, to start, to create the safety culture. I mean, that's what oh, I, I, see. I thought you meant we, because we're, are we responsible for online pornography? I, I, oh, no, 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 no. Well, that too. I mean, listen, it's our generations right. that created the internet. Um, right. um, um, and, um, so yes, that too. But I mean, I mean, just more generally, we we created the current ethos. Mm-hmm. Um, we we created the climate that these young people then were raised in, and are now fully expressing and acting upon. And um, I understand why they would be angry at us for it. But rather than resenting us for giving them a bunch of bad ideas, they're tripling down on the ideas and now resenting those of us who are saying, well, maybe they're not really great ideas. And so it's very hard to know how one is supposed to fix the situation but that this is no way to be strikes me as absolutely crucial and it has to be it has to be expressed because you said it in the book i mean they're the ones suffering the effect yeah they're the ones who aren't having who are having no sex in in a way that's disturbing if you look at statistics over the generations um they're the ones who 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 rather who are acting like a bunch of old women rather than like young people, right? Young people are supposed to be brash and dangerous. In other words, we've almost kind of like broken youth. It seems see, I, I, see, this is, I actually would push back a little bit. I, or I would ask you, like, why do you care? Why do we care? Because I want, because I, because if I think about, I'm a parent, what is my most fundamental duty? That my, my child should have at least as good and hopefully a better experience than I had. And the fact of the matter is they are simply demonstrably having a worse experience. They will say so themselves when they're not doing this false bravado. They'll say it themselves. They'll admit it. My daughter watches John Hughes movies with longing simply because at this point, it's almost like watching science fiction, right? Um, um, the notion that you'd have that much freedom. She doesn't right? think they're racist and non-inclusive and, uh, well, being my daughter, she's kind of somewhat immune to that sort of absurd, um, that sort of absurd take on, on, on these things. Um, um, but 
so she very much laments the fact that she she feels like her childhood kind of was she was robbed of one mm-hmm. um and um um so 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 the reason I care is because I think our most fundamental duty as adults is to ensure that our the next generation has at least as good an experience but hopefully a better experience than we did yeah and we haven't done that we've done the opposite and now it's our damn job duty to fix it for god's sake and instead of doing that, it seems to me like we're all just capitulating to the damaged people we've made, right? I mean, we were just sort of like, I mean, why are all these institutions just capitulating to this well, online well, nonsense, right? Right. Well, because they're cowards. I mean, this, this, <laughs> my problem is it's not the, the, the people screaming, the people hashtagging and screaming on Twitter as we have said many times, are very small portion of the population. There are a lot of people on Twitter, but they're not, they're just a tiny slice. Same thing with the activists. People deplatforming speakers and pulling fire alarms, very small sliver. They have outsized influence is the problem. And so university presidents will cede authority to them. You have corporations firing people, you know, bowing to the whims of a few loud Twitter users, and that's what's really dangerous. If, if Disney is going to fire film directors over people on Twitter complaining about his 10-year-old tweets, then nobody's working for Disney. We're all working for Twitter. So that's really what troubles me. Do you think, and I've been wrestling with this because I've written about this and talked about this on blogging hands with other people about it. Do you think that these institutions are really scared of social media backlash, or do you think that they're they're cynically cal- try- they're cynically calculating way new ways to make money? I think that they are looking at the demographics and deciding that's where their audience is. So I would say the latter. I mean, if there's some, it's easy. If somebody gets accused of something, it's it's easier to just dispatch with that person than actually open an investigation and enter into some sort of due process. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's always follow the money, right? But yeah, I mean, I, I think so. But I mean, at times I wonder because um, just some of the behavior is so bizarre, um, 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 and some of these companies are so powerful that I can't imagine that they could really seriously be frightened by by some social media reactions um, um, by people who, by their own admission and claim have no career prospects, have no money, are living with their parents till they're 30, can't afford health care, health insurance. Okay, that doesn't sound like that great of a market to me. Um, that sounds like, that sounds to me like, you know, I want to spend the people, you know, the people who have all the money are the baby boomers and the Gen Xers, right? Um, right. Or the people working all the time who don't have time to tweet all day. Yes. So, <laughs> so I, I don't know. I, I vacillate back and forth between thinking it's cynical and thinking that they're, that they're cowards and, 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 and well, but they, they play off of each other. I yeah. mean, the cynicism makes you a coward. These are completely intertwined. So I, I think it's both. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. You know, I just, I have a book. So a, me, Massimo Pellucci, and Sky Clear, we have a book coming out in January on Random House. Okay, so huge publisher. Um, my first experience going through all of that um, um, and uh, the you know, editorial process and all of that, I actually was start, kind of struck by the extent to which the, the, the editor the publisher gives you is essentially an invisible for, a fourth additional author. Um, 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 mm-hmm. they, they, you will well, make the change. Lucky. 
you will make the changes that they say, whether you think they're apt or not. Um, um, so I, I found it all very fascinating. But one of the things that really did occur to me was sort of like, you know, hmm, you know, a social media mob could get me chucked off this pro- chucked off right i mean they could they could go after random house and try chucked and off the book or chucked off your job or what do you mean well get me chucked off the book right um but the um, book will have to come out first before they would do that so you couldn't really be chucked off well i don't know i don't know but i've, I've seen i've seen like with young adult fiction what they're doing books are about oh, to come yes. out and right. then they get yanked sensitivity readers yeah right and since there's three of us you know they could just make the book by two of us or whatever <laughs> and um and um because it's an anthology, so I mean, so to pull out my chapter and you know whatever, right? Yeah. And I thought of, and so at first I thought this should strike terror in me, right? I mean, I should be really worried about this, but then I thought to myself, I said, you know, I'm really not very worried about it, and the reason is because I just really, at this point, haven't hung my hat all that much about going through the institutions. In other words, I've been quietly, slowly building up my own platform. Yeah. And part of the reason for it is that so I will be immune. <laughs> to these sorts of things. And um, I've got more people reading me now on my independent platform than ever, ever will read anything I ever publish um, right. through any institution. And so I guess what I'm wondering is, isn't this, isn't the way for us to all be more brave and just sort of, and to sort of do what needs to be done is to, is to just say F off to the institutions and create our own platforms. Yeah. But again, I mean, that's, Joe Rogan is bigger than anything Yes, that's coming out of any major institution. So that just tells me you don't need them. Right? Well, I mean, and I, I, I agree with you and I hope to do the same. So I'm not, uh, I, I just, I'm just telling you what the other side would say. Sure, of course. And there's a kernel of truth there. I mean, Joe Rogan is really lucky. He's an outlier. Most people do not a- a- attain that level of, of influence and traction uh, it's really, I hate to use the word, a privilege to be able to just say, well, fuck off. I'm going to, I'm going to do my thing. Uh, I mean, presumably you're not worried about losing your teaching position. Some people would be, um, maybe you could survive without it. Part of the reason I wrote this book, uh, was that I am in a position to do so. I, I don't have kids. I do not have a single payer career. I work, I have many jobs. I'm a freelancer. If, if one place decides to chuck me, I like this word chuck. I'm going to start using, uh, I've got several others. Um, I don't, I'm not married. I don't have my spouse. I'm not going to drag down anymore. So I kind of feel like I can take the body blows in ways that maybe other people can't. And also I've been around long enough. I, I, they're not going to take away what I've done in the past. And again, the weird, weird thing about this is that there is nothing in this book that is any more provocative than anything I've done in my career. I I have a book that I published in 2001. It's called My Misspent Youth. It's an essay collection, pieces that were in the New Yorker and Harper's. The millennials love this book now. Gen Xers love this book. I can tell you that it would never be published today. It is the most white privileged navel gazing girl uh you know wrestling with her existential crisis as she <laughs> wonders why she can't live in an apartment in Manhattan like people in Woody Allen movies okay that is literally what the title essay is about it was in the new yorker it was a huge hit it is considered a classic 
I, I don't know what we're talking about here. And and I have been writing. I wrote a novel that is literally the most politically incorrect thing you can imagine. Every single identity group is sent up. It's it's about the way the media uh, manipulated the simplicity movement. It takes place in the Midwest. Okay, these things would never be published now. If anything, this book is the most circumspect. This is why it's driving you crazy, okay? Yeah. I can tell you, the stuff that's driving you crazy about if I hadn't done that, it wouldn't be published. Yeah, so, I, I, yeah. Don't, don't over. I, I no, love. No, I know. I, I, I love this book. I love I this book. No, I, I, look, I believe me. Anything that you're feeling, I have felt and has been discussed. It's just that you're so you're so articulate and you're so um good at weaving personal narrative in with sort of these big political issues that. I, I, I want to march behind your, your, your soldier's banner. Like, I'm like, I'm, I'm with that. Like, I'm with her, right? I mean, um, um, cause you, yeah. you write so much uh, better than I do that, that it's just sort of like, well, you know, let her, let her go and do it, right? Um, and we'll follow. Um, um, I want you to lead a movement. Um, um, it's interesting though, but you know, those other books, you do realize any moment they could, somebody could decide to, 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 to start tweeting pieces. Absolutely. And could. they could go like, they could flip like this in a second, right? I mean, because they're doing this, they're excavating stuff that's now decades old. Right. And doing this to it. So, I mean, you're not, you're not in a sense safe in that sense. Um, and I, listen, I, 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 I appreciate, I, I did not mean to be cavalier. Oh, no, no. I, I am bringing this up because yeah. I, I'm on the same page as you. Yeah. I don't mean to be cavalier when I say, hey, let's develop our own independent platforms and, and screw these institutions. But look, part of the reason I say that in addition to the, the reason I gave is that these institutions are, are going to be gone soon anyway. Yeah. Um, um, the publishing industry is in its last gasp. It will not survive the internet any more than, than the music, than, than the recording industry has. And, um, um, just as, just as there are never, not going to be any more Rolling Stones because of the nature of the way that music is sold and distributed, um, um, and consumed, there aren't going to be any more random house books much longer, um, um, given the way that, that media is, is created and consumed. And so I think, you know, either you get it, you're going to get ahead of it and, and be, have that independent platform before all of it collapses, or you're going to have to get one after it collapses because it's yeah. not long for the world. It seems to me. Yeah, no, uh, um, um, that's, um, that's true. So, you know, um, so we may as well, you know, sort of do the right thing and, um, and, uh, and, and try to get, ahead I agree. But in, ter- in terms of the speaking out, I mean, I just want to go back to that. I think, uh, I, I do think it is, hard for people. And I think it's easy for people like us. We're, you know, we have intellectual jobs. We're in creative class. Okay. I have so many people coming up to me in re- at readings, like people writing to me throughout the day, not even just daily, hourly telling me, thank you for saying this. You've articulated what I feel. I wish I could say this, but I can't even say it at work. I am an ad executive. I work in an architecture firm. I am a doctor. Yeah. I am on the board of this hospital, whatever. And I can't even, I'm afraid to talk to my colleagues. So I, again, that's why I think that it is, it is exactly what you're saying. It is our job as people who have the platform, who have the freedom and the independence to speak up. Because I keep saying, you know, if the smart, thoughtful people don't really start to criticize what's become of public discourse, the stupid thoughtless people are happy to do the job for us. <laughs> That's right. And it's really, really important. 
so if you care about liberalism, if you care, if you actually care about resistance, you will resist yeah. uh, in a coherent manner. Yeah. Yeah. So what's ne- What's after this? <laughs> this just came out a week ago. What's I, don't after mean, I don't mean that. What's your next book? What I mean is, <laughs> is this you gathering yourself to now pursue various avenues or is this the culmination of something and mm. now, you, and now your, your, your mind is going to move to other things at this point? No, it's self, you know, this book, it's really so many things in my life coalescing. I mean, it is, it is very personal. It is a book about aging. It's a book about what it's like for a Gen Xer. I think Gen Xers experience aging in a particular way because like I said, we, we have, we feel like we're being called oldsters way before the baby boomers started being called oldsters. I think, I mean, would you disagree with that? They well, just, a, I agree with very old and we're B, not that old. B, a, I agree with that, but B, it resonates even so much more strongly with me because I actually think of the generation since since the Second World War, and probably in the 20th century, Gen X was the most inherently youthful generation. In other words, I thought that we did youth in a sense. <laughs> yeah, we, got, we were unemployed b- better than anyone. Well, I, that's true. And, and, and actually, you know, that... People forget about that, 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 that we had that worry, um, that, that's currently, that currently is now the worry amongst the young is that we would be unemployed. But more yeah. in a sense that, that our generation was the generation when young people, as young as teenagers, had the greatest amount of social capital. Um, think about how many of the top models, movie stars were, were 15 years old, 16 years old, right? Um, um, ours was a culture in which, in which youth had maximal freedom. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a generation where we had maximal freedom, maximal social capital. And, um, and so I think that, and we produce some of the best youth culture. Um, and so it, it seems to me that it's the hard, I'm finding it very, very hard to grow old, mm. not physically, but I'm finding it very hard. I'm finding myself looking at my students and thinking, gosh, I'm physically older than you, but I'm, I'm actually spiritually much younger than you. You have, you act like my mother, right? Um, in terms of your concerns, right? Um, 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 your worry warts. And, um, so I'm, I, I think our generation is sort of the least, is going to have the worst aging crisis. <laughs> well, and that's, that's what a lot of the book is about. It, yeah. it really is. And it came through, it comes through. Yeah, no, it's about loss. There's a great deal of loss. I mean, it's aging, it's divorce. It's really trying to, you know, navigate all these, all these personal transitions uh, with, against the backdrop of political catastrophe. Do you think it would have been, do you think it's, I find, if you ask me what makes it somewhat easier I would definitely say having children. In other words, being a parent allows me to kind of shift gear in a way. And I'm finding that, that of my friends who remain childless, I'm finding that their feet, that they seem and feel more awkward in their middle age and old age. Do you think that there's something to that? Do you think this would yeah. have been easier had you been a parent? Well, obviously, um, not the divorce would not, not have been not, easy. That. Um, I, I'm going to answer um, it, it uh, like for the general population because I just, in particular, never wanted children, and I've I've written a lot about it. I edited a whole anthology about 
people who choose not to have right. children. Fair but enough. I'm, but I'm as a general outlier, matter, I'm an outlier in that, in that way. So I'm just going to put myself aside for a second. So personally, no, it, I, I would be very unhappy if I had children, but that's just me. I'm a, I'm a weirdo. So yeah, but I think absolutely you're right. In for the most part on a population level, um, most people, children relieve a sort of existential anxiety and it does give you something to, you've got skin in the game in a way. And, and, you know, you know what songs are popular, you know how to work your remote control, all those sorts of things. And yeah, I think, I think that's true. Yeah. You know, if, if I, I wrote it, I wrote an essay called middle-aged punk, middle-aged, middle-aged punk, middle-aged punk, where I was talking, where I was about, talking about, hold on, I'm getting echo. Hold on, I'm getting echo. All right. I just paused for a minute because I was getting feedback. Um, um, I, I wrote an essay called Middle-Aged Punk where I sort of talked a little bit how I felt like the boomers and the Xers kind of broke adulthood because we were so immersed in such a rich youth culture that as we got older, all the stuff we would like would still be stuff that really is made for kids, right? Um, that wasn't true of my parents. You know, my parents were listening to music that to me is a, that, that is adult music, right? right. Um, 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 and the reason why the children thing, to me, my mind sort of makes it easier is because so I can like popular culture that's for young people. I can listen to punk rock music and all that, but there is an undeniably adult role that I play. Right. And that's being somebody's parent and eventually somebody's grandparent. And it almost feels to me like I'm able to see my life in a kind of arc that I feel like if I didn't have children and it was just me and my wife, um, that I would, I would feel at this point like a child in an adult's body, right? It would, it would be a weird kind of. Uh, but it's you, interesting because I've had parents say the same thing that they never really feel grown up. So I'm not sure that that's necessarily something you can, uh, that can be solved by having children. But I, I, I hear you. I mean, there's the, the, I think the arc of a life, that's certainly, that sounds right. How much of your cha- tastes changed? Zero. And does yeah. that ever, do you ever sit there and think like, look at yourself and say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm, well, my guess, I'm 51 years old. Yeah. I'm 49. But and yes. I'm listening to Black Flag. Like, well, I don't listen to Black Flag. Well, um, whatever, whatever your juvenile no, tastes are. I, I taste, my, I am still stuck in the early nineties as far as I'm concerned. The films that I love, the music that I love, the books that I love. Oh, my soul resides in that place. And that is certainly a limitation. Um, does it feel but, like, does it feel sometimes like clothes that don't fit anymore? Um, not, no, no, I, I, they, it feels like my clothes. Feels like my wardrobe. Interesting. All right. Well, you and I will have to have an entirely another conversation just about getting old and aging. That um, sounds so fun. Let's because I'm more and more want to write, I want to write about that now more and more. I'm, I'm actually kind of sick and tired of the political stuff. <laughs> um, at the end of the day, I, I'm I'm somewhat skeptical about how much influence you can really have on these things, um, yeah. and I'm more and more interested in exploring some other things that strike me as deeper and perhaps. More oh yeah, deep. no, I'm actually I've written a lot about death. I'm obsessed with death, and uh, like I wrote a whole piece about how I want to be buried, and yeah, I think we could probably have a lot to talk about. That, that was great. <laughs>
I find that very soothing. Oh God, I I I'm in total denial. Oh, Complete denial. <laughs> you got to go from denial to hobby. <laughs> Megan Dam, really enjoyed this, um, and um, wish I could talk to you for three hours um, <laughs> because you're so interesting, and I, was, I just any, you can pick it up anytime. And I like the and I like the pushback. I like the fact that you don't agree with me on things, and and um, that we're not just like a generational marching band. Um, that's that's great. I was um, in the orchestra, my friend. And I hope the book is this doing well so far. I think so. I'm the people on the ground love it. I'm getting so much mail and read events have been really, really powerful and and fun. So well, everyone should buy this. This is amazing. Um, it's just good to read. Regard even if you don't like care about politics, so much of it is Megan's personal uh, story. It's very compelling, very very well written, and I thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Dan. It was great to be here. Thanks. Take care of yourself. Okay. Bye.